Race in Space, and Saturn's Wandering Moons. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Protests across the country have highlighted systemic racism and turned the national conversation towards equality and justice. So how does racial inequality affect space exploration? We'll speak with Gerard Williams, a recent graduate of the University of Mississippi School of Law, about equality in space and the effort to inspire more diverse explorers. Then Saturn's moon Titan is getting farther and farther away from the ringed planet. How do we know this? And is Titan the only moon on the move? We'll ask our panel of experts on this week's segment, I'd Like to Know. That's just ahead, but first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. A key piece of NASA's next moon rocket arrived at the Kennedy Space Center ahead of a planned launch late next year. The parts that make up the SLS rocket's side boosters arrived at KSC ahead of an uncrewed launch of NASA's Orion capsule on a trip around the moon. The booster segments were transported by train from Utah and will provide much of the initial thrust needed to launch the rocket into orbit. Work will now begin assembling the booster segments and the rest of the rocket inside KSC's towering vehicle assembly building. The launch is the first step of NASA's next moonshot called Artemis, with plans to land humans on the lunar surface by 2024. Stay up to date with the latest space headlines. Visit wmfe.org space or follow me on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The issue of racial equality is in the national spotlight as protests around the country highlight systemic racial injustices. We're joined by Gerard Williams from the University of Mississippi's School of Law to talk about racial inequality in space exploration and how he hopes efforts to inspire more people of color will promote equity here on Earth and beyond. Williams recently gave a lecture called The Dark Star, Black Representation in Space on Racial Inequality in the Space Industry. Williams begins our conversation looking back at equality throughout human spaceflight history. The history of diversity in space exploration actually evolves. In the beginning, you see that it's a profession predominantly dominated by white males. Um, And you start to see that NASA actually takes on an identity of wanting to promote diversity And I think the major shift in that comes during the civil rights movement. But even a little earlier, you see that they start wanting uh, more diverse um, professionals, engineers, and um, things of that sort. And so you get those people in behind the scenes, and then you start to see more of an effort to get those people in major roles, like being an astronaut and being the face, you know, because most people recognize NASA. When they hear the words NASA, they think of astronauts. And so you start to see that astronauts don't just have an identity of white males anymore. You start to see uh, black males like Ronald E. McNair, or you start to see women like Mae Jemison, who comes from the efforts of someone like uh, Nichelle Nichols, who was actually an actress, Uh, from Star Trek um, and did a lot of recruitment for NASA um, because she was interested in space and brought women to the program through her efforts. So I think that the diversity that you see evolves 
and you start to see that NASA takes on more of a more of an approach that allows them to um, benefit from these types of people very quickly as they start to realize that there are more people who are interested in space that are, you know, of different colors, of different ethnicities, and um, of different genders. Yeah, it's important to have that, you know, someone who looks like me to get that initial inspiration going, right? That that was the whole point of Michelle Nichols and, and, and the push for diversity in, in hard sciences and in the astronaut corps. Uh, but going back, you mentioned a name, Ronald McNair. Tell me his story. How, how did he become inspired and, and how did he get to where he is within NASA? Ronald McNair actually is, is one of those interesting stories where you realize that, you know, most young kids don't really know what they want to do, um, as you said, if you don't see the representation there. And so Ronald D. McNair goes throughout his childhood not really knowing anything or anyone who's um, particularly interested in the sciences outside of seeing Sputnik. Um, on television and hearing about it and of course being able to see Star Trek um, and the diverse cast that they had. Ronald then goes throughout high school um, and he's a musician but he's also still interested in the hard sciences and he uses this interest and eventually gets a scholarship to go to um, North Carolina A&T, but he receives his scholarship um, because it was a promotional scholarship um, in the sense that if you wanted to study the hard sciences, but you were black and you would leave the state of South Carolina, well, we will give you money to do that. Um, because at the time, South Carolina did not want black students studying hard sciences at their colleges or universities. Um, and so Ronald goes to North Carolina A&T, and of course, he's still interested in the sciences, but he starts to doubt himself. He starts to believe that maybe um, I'm not really that great at this, or maybe I'm just not really prepared or ready to do something like this. Um, and then you find out that, oh, no, I can do this. Um, especially with the help of one of his advisors, they convince him that, you know, you can play music anytime. Like, you could always be a musician, but, you know, you should go into physics. And so Ronald goes into physics and he excels. He gets into uh, MIT for his PhD. And even going to MIT and getting his PhD, he's met with a lot of challenges because, of course, MIT being such a prestigious university, you know, there aren't a lot of African-Americans there, if any, in his program at all at the time. And he's initially intimidated by the fact that he's going to be one of the only African-Americans there. Um, and because of the reputation of the school at the time, but he continues to excel. And even when he loses two years worth of research, because it was actually stolen from him. He still regathers that research for his PhD within the year. So he gathers two years worth of research within the year and is able to graduate from MIT 
and start working at Hughes. And so he's working at Hughes and actually figures out about the um, shuttle personnel calling from NASA through a postcard, like essentially junk mail, something you would get and you probably wouldn't even pay attention to, something you would just throw off to the side. He gets this flyer. He sees it. He um, applies. And once he applies, he actually gets into a very, very bad car accident. Um, and he gets accepted into the program. And the accident was to the point where they didn't know if he'd be able to actually make it to his training uh, in time. Um, but he overcame that and actually becomes a part of NASA. And he's one of three black males chosen um, of the 35 people selected out of the 10,000 people that apply. And so you see that though he did not have these representations or these people um, to look at and say, uh, oh, this is why I want to do this, or I know I can do this because of this, uh, he continues to go throughout his journey only betting on himself um, and not believing at times that he would even get to this point. Um, but of course he overcomes. And um, one thing that I point to is that that happens to a lot of um, African-American youth that they don't really discover that they can do something until they're doing it. Usually like Ronald, they have these doubts. They have these things that turn them away. And then maybe there's not someone there to shift them back into it. And so they're left with the idea that learning as they go versus knowing the entire time that this is what I'm going to do. And so it requires a lot of adaptation. It requires a lot of patience. And it also requires just a lot of belief and faith in your effort, your abilities, and for some, it does turn them away. But for Ronald uh, specifically, it, it made him better. And he's proven to um, be um, an inspiration to many since he continued to go on for himself. Mm -hmm. It's such an interesting story, um, his. And um, unfortunately, Ronald was one of the astronauts that died in the, in the Challenger accident. Um, Gerard is, is that his legacy that he leaves behind this, this journey that he took that, that, that other, um, aspiring black astronauts follow? Well, I think that his legacy, uh, has been cemented in several ways. Um, but he is known to be an astronaut, but I think that people have even alluded to just him being somebody who you should want to be not only um, in the hard sciences, not only if you're a person NASA, but who you should want to be as a person, because everyone says that um, Ronald McNair was a great person. He was somebody who was driven. He was somebody who was intelligent. Um, he was easygoing. He was someone who wanted the best out of himself, but also looked for the best in others. And so I think that that's why his identity um, and his legacy, you see it in so many places because people not, are not only promoting Ronald 
uh, McNair as an astronaut or as a physicist, but they're promoting him as a person. And I think that um, his legacy lives even larger than just his achievements within NASA, but his life achievements. I'm glad you brought up the fact that it's more than just about being an astronaut, right? There's there's so many other things that are involved in space exploration, and it's more than just being an astronaut. Do you think that there is enough outreach out there now to get kids of color uh, to understand that, that there are careers, there are you know learning paths that are these hard sciences that aren't just becoming an astronaut? Is there enough out there to, to inspire these kids? I would say that it's kind of a half and half. I think that there is enough out there, but I don't think that there, like there's enough out there to inspire, but I don't think there's enough effort to reach um, the, these these kids. So I think that of course there are, cause you know, there have been resources, uh, a lot of resources spent on the hard sciences on different programs, on different, um, and on many different levels from, you know, the youth, the young age to the old, to when you're older, that the programs are there and the resources are there, but I don't think that they actively show many people that they can do that um, at an early age. Uh, I'm going to pick your legal brain here, uh... Gerard, since you are a graduate of the University of Mississippi Law School, um, what are some of the legal things um, that have happened throughout history that have kind of helped get black people where they needed to be? I, I, you, you brought up uh, the civil rights um, movement of the 1960s, um, but what other legal things are there that, that kind of protect people and help inspire and, and contribute to diversity and, and exploration? Some of the things that contribute to diversity and protection of exploration is just like just human. I think it goes to human morality, but also human rights. I think that when you start to recognize that the way that we explore and the way that we get to these spaces um, is by like is by protecting each other because space is a different place. Um, it's not Earth. You know, it's not something that we're familiar with. It's not like um, going from Florida to Missouri. It's like leaving um, the planet entirely and embarking on something that many people will never see in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the rights of people and you think about people as humans and as explorers of um, a different and entirely different place entirely, you start to realize that, okay, we have to survive. And so once you look at it as, okay, we aren't here as a white male, a black male, or a white woman or a black woman, or even, you know, if you want to talk about any other person of color, you start to realize like we're here as space explorers. We are all the same people now because we have to get back. We have to get back home 
Um, and we have to be able to tell people about this. We have to be able to have more people do this. And so if we take on, if we keep our biases as we go up into this unknown territory, this unknown place, then we potentially could not make it back. Um, and so I think that that's what it comes down to is it comes down to human rights and realizing that you need different types of people on the surface to go up there because you have to have different types of people tell the story and you have to have different types of representation for everybody to realize that they could do the same things. And so once you start to have that and you start to realize, okay, we're protecting the lives of each other. I think that you veer away from what we've done domestically. You veer away from it and you create an entirely new um, establishment you create something that people have never seen before, which is true equality, true diversity, uh, genuine um, rights uh, being protected. Because, you know, as we know, historically, the rights of those who are in power have been protected. And then gradually people are given more as things have gone on. But if you start at the base level and you say, okay, the moment we go here, we're all the same. We, we, we all have the same goal. We all have the same amount of rights and we should not infringe on those um, in this place. I think that you will start to see a shift because that was your base. That's your foundation is the protection of other lives, of the protection of lives altogether versus as individuals. Finally, Gerard, there are going to be so many opportunities for more and more people to get to space in you know the very near future i'm thinking of you know private companies like blue origin and virgin galactic and and also companies like spacex who are setting out to make that you know home on another planet um to wrap up the conversation i mean what do you see as the future of exploration and is it a diverse future um, I think that it will be as diverse as we hope, but I think that we have to start off by, we have to make it diverse um, in the sense that, not even in the sense of the people going to the settlements, but I think we have to make it diverse in the people working on us going to the settlement. You know, I think that that's where the diversity starts. It starts at the ground level. So if you have um, diverse organizations and institutions working on the entire effort, and you are investing in diversity um, early on, I think that at the end goal, when you see, okay, who we want in these settlements, who's going to be able to make it to these settlements, and who's going to be able to afford to get there, I think that you see more affordability and more accessibility if you are able to establish diversity in the beginning with the people working on it. And so I think that once you get those diverse groups working on it, those diverse organizations, and you invest in diversity, I think that you do have the diversity that you want to see in space because I think that that's the goal. I think that the goal is to get as many different types of people in, into space as you can and actually giving people an opportunity to see something outside of what they are used to, which is, you know, the America's which is, you know, the the Europe's and things like that, you start to see that people get used to something. 
And so they start to maybe lose hope in something. But if there's something new out there, if there's a place that they can go that they've never been, if there are people that look like me um, working on the effort to get there, then I, I even believe I can get there, you know? Um, so I think that that's how you get that diversity that you um, that you so that you want so badly um, in spaces that you establish diversity from the beginning. You say that we're going to have diverse groups, diverse organizations. We're going to have that who those people working on it. And so that when we are ready to go, that those people go to. That was Gerard Williams from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Still to come, Saturn's wandering moon isn't the only one. Could we lose our moon too? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Saturn's moon Titan is getting farther and farther away from the ringed planet. How do we know this? And is Titan the only moon on the move? I pose that question to our expert panel of physicists, UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Addie Dove kicks off the conversation. So they're all orbiting Saturn, so in one way they're all moving right through space. Um, but this this question is actually referring to a recent result that came out talking about uh, the fact that Saturn's moon is actually changing its orbit and it's moving further away. Uh, so this is about Titan, and it's moving further away from Saturn. Um, and it turns out that most of Saturn's moons actually are cha- slightly changing their orbital distance. Um, and it's the same thing that happens with our moon. So the Earth's moon is actually receding away from the Earth no. uh, as well. That doesn't sound good. We like the moon. Jim, you, it's yeah, not going that it, fast, Jim. Okay. As it, as it moves further away, our day gets longer. And so eventually we'll have that extra hour of sleep. Okay, so that you mean, is a good thing. You mean thing. an extra hour to work on proposals? <laughs> right. Yeah, so, so moon's orbits evolve because of their interactions uh, with the planets. And it's really interesting and kind of incredible that it happens um, because it's a, it, it seems like it'd be a very weak force. It's this tidal interaction. And the rate of that motion has to do with how easily deformed the planet and the moon are by the gravitational stretching that's going on between the two objects. And we don't really know a lot about, obviously, how squishy a moon or a planet is. And in fact, one of the ways we try to figure that out is by looking at how quickly their orbits are evolving. But because those are super slow, that's a hard measurement to make. Mm-hmm. That's that's my next question is, how do you, how do you measure this? Like, I, I, I can see us easily measuring the moon's slippage or, or its movement away from, from the Earth, but... How do we measure the the distance that that Titan is moving away from Saturn? How do you how do you take these measurements when it's so far away? So a lot of the measurements that they've used, and and we've uh, we've been, people have been looking at this for a lot of Saturn's moons for a while actually, um, and most of the data they've used for that is based is from Earth-based telescopes or Hubble and things like that, and it's called astrometry. So it's just sort of tracking the positions of moons with time. Um, but this paper, in addition to all the Earth-based stuff, actually used some data from Cassini. So it used astrometry data from Cassini, so also just sort of tracking positions, and um, some radio science data from Cassini, which is basically tracking the position of the spacecraft as it was near Titan and seeing how um, that changed over time to get a better idea of how Sa- of Saturn's position, uh, Titan's position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the motions are really small, but you can measure like the position of Cassini super accurately, very, very precisely by looking at the frequency of its radio transmissions. And you kind of build this web 
of uh, network of where Cassini is relative to Titan and where Titan is relative to Saturn. And all of that ties together and can give you a really precise measurement of the orbit of the moon. Mm -hmm. Still, that's really, I, I'm with Brendan, that's ludicrously uh, um, impressive because it's not, it's not like it's moving kilometers per year or something like that. It's inching outward at centimeters, millimeters or something like that per year or something like that. That's an amazing uh, measurement to be able to make. I'm impressed. Well, and that's part of it is that they, so they, they did some models to sort of, to look at how this has changed over time, but we sort of had predictions about how far it was moving and they sort of expected it was on the order of like a centimeter or something or less than a centimeter, I think, uh, per year. Um, and now it turns out that it's going more uh, like 11 centimeters or something like that per year, which is a huge amount. I I'm, I'm always know I'm on um, the right track when Jim agrees with me on something. So I feel very smart today. Thank yeah. you, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to say it, it Saturn, uh, Titan is the biggest moon of Saturn and all of the moon's orbits are evolving under this same process, but at different rates. And then as the moon's orbits evolve, they kind of hook up with each other through these orbital resonances where one moon starts strongly affecting the orbit of another moon. And then that changes the rate of the orbital evolution of that moon. And that can do things like cause extra squishing of a moon, which might be one of the things that's heating up Enceladus and giving it a, a liquid ocean in its interior and producing those famous geysers. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is, you know, what, what is the significance of this finding? You know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we can track these, these tiny movements or, or large movements depending on um, what you're looking at. Like, why, why is this so significant? So it tells us, um, like, from the modeling, it, they actually predict that um, Titan probably started much closer than we thought. So if it's moving this much faster, it probably started closer than we thought. And in that case, as it's moving outwards, it has more chances to interact with other moons. So it could be one reason why some of the other moons have some weirder orbits than we'd expect. Um, but it also tells us a little bit about Saturn itself. So part of what affects um, these resonances and these tides is sort of the quality factor, which is a, a funny term, of Saturn, which is kind of how squishy it is. Um, and so this tells us that maybe that's actually been changing over time too. And a lot of the models use a, a constant value for that and say it's never changed over time, but maybe it has. And we sort of need to relook at how these moons move around and evolve um, on their orbits. Mm -hmm. What about other if, if, planets? Are we able to determine, you know, this, this kind of shift on, of moons from, from other planets in our solar system? We can certainly see it, but it helps to have a spacecraft there. Right. The Cassini at Saturn has been a, a real boon for us uh, trying to measure all these things. I'm sure the same things are happening to the moons of Jupiter. It's got a ton of moons that are interacting in a very complicated way. Uh, and we should learn a lot more about that now. We have some, uh, some new satellites near uh, Jupiter that are doing things like measuring the internal structure of Jupiter. And that's going to help us understand this process a lot more. Mm -hmm. And with all these things moving around, if, if things are moving, that means it's you know, like Eddie was saying, you have to piece back the history of where everything came from. And we still don't know a lot about how these moon systems formed, how the rings formed, how old all that stuff is. And so when all of a sudden you discover things have been moving much more rapidly, that places some really important constraints on piecing together the whole history of this. That system. was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show, or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. 
If you've got a question for our panel, send us an email. We're are we there yet at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV editorial guidance this week from Abe Abaraya. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>